Hello everyone, just a quick public service announcement before we get to the pod this week as it was recorded super early on account of a Whittington Smith family holiday and this news reached us just after we'd wrapped. As you know, our live show on the 20th of July is the final episode of Set Piece Menu and we obviously plugged the ticket details in the episode you're about to hear pretty near the beginning in fact so in about five minutes time you'll be logging on to myticket.co.uk to get your ticket for the show at 21 Soho just to get us to shut up about it all. But... As it is the final show, and you're paying London prices, we wanted to put on something worthy of the occasion. So we asked if recent SPM contributor, former footballer, and now published author, Nader Manuha, would like to join us for both a chat and some fun and games. He's agreed to the chat and will be forced to participate in the fun and games, so he has no say on that. So we can announce that you will be able to join Stephen, Rory, and me, and Nader Manuha burgeoning media star and on account of saying yes to our offer immediately promoted from acquaintance to colleague and who knows by the end of the live show maybe even a friend on the 20th of July at 21 Soho in London head to myticket.co.uk also a friendly bookseller will be there allowing you to get your hands on a copy of his excellent new autobiography Kicking Back which Naden will no doubt sign for you in an effort to reflect the multi-author panel on the night we'll also have copies of Rory's book Mister which Naden will also no doubt sign for you so join us and our special guest Nader Manuha at SPM Live in London on Wednesday the 20th of July at 21 Soho head to myticket.co.uk right now I bet you're all glad we're finishing soon so you don't have to listen to me ceaselessly plugging a live show so then on with SPM 274 which starts with me plugging a live show oh dear Point, there's a, at some point, there is a possibility our alarm will go off. But don't worry, it's not an emergency. It's because the alarm's being tested. It's not a fire Today drill. The t- it's not like there's no fire Do you not have a Smith household fire drill every Friday morning? That once happened live. <laughs> in fact, there, there you go. That once happened live <laughs> on BBC Radio 5 Live when, in the period of time when we didn't have a door on our bathroom, uh, when the steam from Ed's shower set off the smoke alarm and I had to rush downstairs whilst broadcasting, this was in the middle of the pandemic, um, to to work out what on earth was going on. It was very embarrassing. What we need is is the same as what I remember when I first started working in local radio where there was an evacuation tape stashed on top of the, the clock in the studio. And if for whatever reason the alarms in the building went off and you had to evacuate with haste, there was, I think it was on mini-disc, mm. you have to just get this like emergency programme on mini-disc, fire that in so that everybody could clear out and the radio station would remain on air. Do you think we need a, do we need a podcast evacuation tape? Do you, I mean, a podcast evacuation <laughs> tape sounds like a very specific genre of thing you might search for on the dark web. The, um, <laughs> the, uh, do you remember we found the niche, we have finally found the niche area of podcasting. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast evacuation tape. The, um, do you remember what the show was? The, what, what, what was the emergency show? I don't, I, I'm not sure it was ever required. I, I, I don't think it would have been winning any awards. Does you know that when, and I mean, you know, heaven forfend, um, when the Queen dies, that you will both know this as broadcasters, but there's mm. like specific things in place mm. that oh, yes. you're not you're not allowed to broadcast anything funny. No, you know, you you go, you basically play drive by cars over and over and over again, which was always the the first song of either the emergency um, the emergency tape that we had at our radio station, or indeed the obit tape. Everything started with drive by cars because it was. Um, completely emotionally neutral but still somber what's drive by cars it's a song you'll recognize it immediately if you heard drive by cars cars is a band cars is a band they did a song called drive we're not talking about (laughs) we're not talking about the gary newman song i'll play it because i think it would be weird to lead into the tweens a bit with (laughs) here in my car (laughs) safest of all (laughs) particularly if obviously she has an unfortunate uh, demise. Now, what if if there was he's a? Gone already. Um, he's, we, we've he's not, gone, we've not even Andy hit the, the intro, me. and Rory has already gone to see Andy the Alarm Man. Rory is back from uh, seeing Andy, his uh, his alarm engineer, um, mm-hmm. who has now successfully tested his alarm, and we have also everything's working. Good, that's good. Now. We've also got through a period of silence, which normally would be broken into by the emergency CD, starting with Drive By Cars, which, uh, Rory, I've managed to get for you.
I mean, already you should be thinking. I mean, that is the soundtrack to the late night journey home from any midweek football match. Yeah, you flick between smooth style radio stations. It, I, don't, I I could never. I couldn't tell you. I've ever definitely heard that piece of music, but it does for some reason feel like home. Yes, you do. Who's gonna? Who's gonna do? Yeah, no, I know, know it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, the thing was, yeah, but I didn't know it had a name. Every t- well, uh, most songs do. Uh, that is "Drive by the Cars," and that if we heard that playing out on the radio station from the office, you knew massive panic ensued <laughs> because either it had been triggered by Category A death, or alternatively, somebody had forgotten to press play on the next song. They'd left the studio. There'd been about a minute's worth of silence, and this had kicked in. But if there was a fire alarm and we all had to leave, like Steve was saying, they had a show to go. That's speech radio. On commercial hit radio, you just uh, put on Hotel California by the Eagles and you knew you had about six and a half minutes to be able to get out, do the fire alarm check, and then come back in again before the the uh, 17th guitar solo had finished. Is that song, Drive By Cars, is that everybody's old I don't, I, I don't, I don't know. I, knew, I know that in it would be sent... Or triggered by the transmitter. If there was ever a transmitter issue, or right. there was silence for a certain amount of time, or there was an obit procedure to follow, I think it was the same emergency CD that had about an hour's worth of music. It's just that the first one is "Drive by the Cars." We we had enough. a long we had a long ring binder full of information about the obit procedure, which really could have just been one line of text, which read. Joy in Radio Four. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that yeah for radio for BBC Radio Manchester. We'd have to go. Sense. We'd have to go through all these re- refresh procedures every so often, and ultimately the conclusion remained the same. So, um, I what was... I would say to you after July the twentieth, uh, when set piece menu ends, just join Radio Four. The I think that we, there's a lot of crossover there anyway. To be honest, uh, it's interesting. This is is this our two hundred and seventy fourth episode? Um, it is SBM two seven four, but uh, because of the other little ones that we put in, um, we're closer to two eighty. So it's interesting that after almost two hundred and eighty episodes, which is probably four hundred and fifty hours of content or so, certainly feels like it. That is <laughs> that is by far the most interesting conversation I've ever had with both of you about radio. <laughs> You should have brought it up earlier. <laughs> this is Set Piece Menu, rushing to squeeze under the rapidly lowering door. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Rory Smith, workshopping another NYT column, and Stephen Wyeth, whose only work right now is the shopping. Uh, a reminder about our live show, which uh, is important to bring in to, as, as much and as welcome information it is to Rory about the radio procedures that we've just been talking about, is this to you, fair listener, about our final show. SPM Live is on Wednesday the 20th of July. It's part of the Goals Loud Podcast Festival. It's in London at 21 Soho. We will be celebrating all things SPM. If you haven't got a ticket yet, you can go to myticket.co.uk. That's myticket.co.uk. Tickets are £24.75. Full disclosure, it includes the fees. That's the full price, more than value. When you consider, um, and I have uh, just decided this, not on a whim, but I'm announcing it nonetheless, there will be audience participation. I'm not entirely sure if I'm going to reveal what kind of audience participation yet, but there definitely will be. Uh, so come prepared to participate. Um, and that join would be it. enough to put me off. If I was, if I was in the audience, withdraw, that would be enough withdraw. to put me off coming. No, you, can cho- you don't have to participate, but you can choose to participate at the moments of possible audience participation. So join us at SPM Live on the 20th of July at Soho 21 in London. Myticket.co.uk is the website for tickets. Please do join us. It'll be really depressing if you don't. Uh, the football is Women's Euro 2022, both a conversation about singular or plural and also the shifting landscape of the game from the US uh, to Europe. That is to come. I imagine we'll spend a lot longer on whether it's Euro or Euros than we will about the shifting landscape of the game because Stephen's on the podcast. Um, you can email at setpiecemenu at gmail.com. We will once again indulge ourselves with your valedictory messages a little later on. But first, we are happy to provide a service for an alternative non-broadcast publication. Raymond, Sergio, Jens and Andy. We are the houses. 
at of eld houses in brackets and this is a long overdue thank you for reading out loud our wordless comic strip on pod 222 it was a very nice surprise do you remember these are the guys that uh, conjured up the comic strip about uh, the return of erling holland as some sort of uh, superhuman robot who would then enact revenge for his father on roy Keane. well they continue do the out of eld houses we spent the recently ended spm hiatus mainly listening to gary neville talking about de- uh, democratizing football from behind a 40 pound paywall but also we spent a lot of the time putting a zine together think the nyt but terrible and with zero editorial oversight a zine for those over the age of i don't know 28 is a magazine. Uh, we'd love to send it to you as we're afraid that no one else is going to get our waiting for Godot joke about Jermaine Pennant's Porsche at Tharagotha train station. Would it be possible for us to send it somewhere where you'd be able to get your eyes on it? Yes, of course. Lots of love. Your friends, Ham Saladice and the SH. Um, so whilst we'll, we'll get an actual copy, you can find them on Instagram and you're very welcome to delve into a, a pod, podcast subject in a greater and probably more um, creative form. So thank you for getting in touch. Kelly Malloy writes in from Location Unknown in response to last week's episode about the Ajax exodus. Hello. I like this week's podcast a lot. Could have ended there, but there is more. And found all of the points well made. Could have ended it there, but there's more. But I thought it was oddly missing. Oh, what Hugh might call the football. The conversation was held as if the point of Ajax and other football clubs is simply to complete transfers. Rory at one point even asked uh, something like, what does it mean? But Ajax are a good team and Ajax fans get to see them win and play well quite often. Not only that, but the Ajax would have won the league the last four years if not for Covid comment obscures the fact that one of those league wins was by two points, one by three points, and the Covid year was one on goal differential. And they didn't win the four years before that. So I guess I would say Ajax is amply rewarded by winning and playing well in a competitive league. If they complaint is yeah but we can't be one of the top eight teams in the world that is kind of like a baby complaining that his warm pool on vacation is not warm enough which is a bit of a dig at my son's recent holiday experience from last week (laughs) thanks for everything (laughs) and that's from kelly malloy Uh, we've got another one on ix so we'll come to that in just a moment on the same subject leander charlican says this dear archie manning peyton manning eli manning and cooper manning that's probably a joke i don't get yes no that's fine the, the Manning, no, the, uh, Manning are they father, all quarterbacks? And, the Manning father and the three sons of Archie Manning. They are uh, no Cooper Manning is not a professional footballer, um, right? But he's the, uh, he's the he's the one they don't talk about. So he's the one they don't talk. About. No, he's very he's very successful in his own right. Uh, but he got an injury when he was in college, so uh, he never played. But after that, um, but yes, the Mannings. It took me more than two hundred episodes, says Leander, of listenership to finally write in, mostly to say well done on a wonderful run in which yours became the only podcast I never missed. But also to offer some thoughts on Ajax, the team I've supported for more than oh god three decades. As Stephen and eventually Rory suggested, I don't think of my club as a victim, although I also don't believe that there was any club hit harder by the timing of the Bosman ruling. Being an Ajax fan is a bit like living in a house under perpetual renovation. It can be frustrating. (laughs) This This is very relevant to Rory. It can be frustrating, but it doesn't mean you can't be happy there or enjoy the views and watching the builders ply their craft or indeed alarm engineers. For most of my lifetime, Ajax has existed in a feast or famine cycle. They either had a team that rolled over the rest of the Eredivisie and made deep runs into Europe, or they were in the midst of a chaotic rebuilding phase that sometimes ran half a decade when PSV or Gasp, even Feyenoord, would dominate. Lately, however, that has not been the case. There was barely a drop-off after the 2019 Champions League should-be finalists began to leave. Ajax, as you noted, brought through the next wave of academy talent and supplemented it with clever buys from outside, and the run of league titles continued unabated. It's true that Ajax cannot spend all the money it collects on transfer fees on new players because of the dynamics of the market, but the club reinvests that cash in a different way. It's wage bill, which towers over that of any other Dutch club and allows Ajax to bring in and mostly keep mid-career players who haven't quite worked out elsewhere. Daley Blint, Dusan Tadic, David Klassen, Sebastian Allaire, etc. Those are the players who now offer continuity and form the spine of the team as the prodigies cycle through. Ajax wasn't able to do that until recently. So in that sense, too, it has managed to turn the excesses of the transfer market to its advantage. The club also has more agency in all of this than I think you give it credit for. It tends to make agreements with its players a year or two out on when they will be allowed to leave for planning purposes. While there is always a tinge of disappointment when another young world beater goes, it is quickly shoved aside by my excitement to see who will come next. 
If Christian Eriksen, say, never leaves, there is no David Klassen, no Donny van der Beek, no Ryan Gravenberg, whose name doesn't end with a ch sound, by the way, he says, just pronounce it as a G. I honestly think I get a bit bored being a fan of one of the Premier League giants putting out scarcely changed teams year after year. What's the fun in that? For me, the regular league titles and occasional forays into the Champions League knockout stages are enough. So while the squad is being raided again, succession plans are doubtless in place. Now I get to watch other cool young players. You'll be missed That's on my commute, says Leander Sharlikins in New York. Uh, Leander is a is a journalist and uh, was running a really interesting uh, Substack newsletter thing. I don't really understand the dynamics of the modern media ecosystem, but um, <laughs> his was really good. Uh, I'm, it may now be defunct. That that might not be a recommendation that's much use to people. But that's a really that's a really good email. I hadn't thought about the wage bill thing. That's absolutely right. It means they probably have access to a better quality of of import or. Um, or signing than than other Dutch clubs. I think they've just signed Owen Weindahl from RZ for like 10 million euros or something, which isn't a massive fee given the amount of money they're expecting to bring in Ajax. But my guess is that they are able to compete with whatever foreign clubs wanted him on a, on a, in terms of wages mm. because of the money they have access to. That's a really good point. Um, and I like the idea that they have that kind of mid-career core that is in place to help the... The, the kids come through. Um, in terms of Kelly's email, I, I think the whole thing was framed, to me anyway, the whole thing was framed in terms of football, that it does feel like there's a lot of clubs whose, whose existence now is to, to create transfers. Some mm. of those, like Ajax, are doing it by uh, largely by sort of nurturing and raising players. Others are picking them off young from sort of supplier countries and and then flipping them effectively in in a system that largely mirrors the global economy um and the problem that i have with it is that you don't get to see the whole thing come to fruition yeah. in terms of football you you it's really interesting by the way it's, it's a little bit tangential but it's really interesting that ajax while they've won four titles in a row haven't won that many of them easily that because i think that yeah. suggests that psv eindhoven in particular don't get nearly enough credit for how good they've become um yeah, there, there was no title awarded in the COVID year. They yeah. finished top of the table four seasons in a row, but only the three of them uh, were, were officially titles. Maybe we just weren't clear enough with, with uh, in relation to Kelly's email that our starting point was, isn't it a shame that this great football team who enjoy wonderful success on the pitch keep getting broken up? And why yeah. is that? Yeah, maybe we didn't quite frame it as we. And it, it would, it's it's kind of a it's a question that would apply to Ajax fans as it applies in a different way to like PSG fans or Bayern fans or, or formerly Juventus fans. Is winning the domestic title enough for Ajax fans to be satisfied, or is there a a degree of um, frustration that they don't get to see that the teams that they are raising compete with all of these giants? Because Ajax do things in the right way, and yet the whole structure of football currently means that they can't ever take that to what should be its natural kind of sporting justice conclusion. And it may be that the, the dramatic nature of the Eredivisie title races generally yeah. stave that off. That if you if you think, well, we, we have to win, because if PSV win, they're going top, that's probably enough to prevent you getting bored in the same way as the best thing that's happened to Manchester City in the last five years, apart from Pep Guardiola, is Jurgen Klopp. That, that City's title title wins would, would be... The the novelty I think would have worn off even for the fans if they'd strolled to to four out of five titles in in the last five years, as you see with Bayern and to an extent previously with PSG that they they don't really care about the domestic right. titles. They know they're going to win it. Um, we'd need we'd need a cross section of Ajax fans, I guess, to to ultimately answer that question. Yeah. But it does feel as though there's enough jeopardy for them domestically compared to the likes of Bayern and PSG that that winning Eredivisie is within itself still enough of a glory that, that, they're prepared that, that not, to, yeah. not, not progressing in the Champions League isn't, isn't quite as damaging as it would be for some of the other big names in European football. But the most important thing here is that none of this has disabused me of the view that this is a really good piece that I should write once I've finished my holiday. <laughs> that was the entire purpose in the first yeah, place. That's what literally why this podcast exists. Um, afternoon, the departing three, says Ben Duxbury, who is our final email for now. As a long-time listener, uh, once I got over the d- disappointment of the fact that the pod will shortly be no more, I thought I'd go back and start listening from the start just to fill my commuting time with something useful. The first pod alone, says Ben, contained the following gems. Number one, Steve advocating for a third-tier European competition so he could establish which country had the best strength in depth. 
Italy, as it turns out. And two, Rory recommending the talents of a then 17-year-old Kai Havertz. There you go. Almost as if you guys know what you're talking about, says Ben. Also, the early episodes were only half an hour long, so can fly through them. Cheers for great content. He means the, the, the shorter stuff. Not anymore. Uh, from Ben. Correspondence of any kind to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. We did now, get flabby and, in, and indisciplined, didn't we? That was... You know, yes, I yes, quite quickly. Yeah, both in terms of con- content and as people. Yes, I was going to say, it very much mirrors our lives. Um, Rory Smith, as we all know, is a big hitter. Respected, almost revered by not only his colleagues, but his millions of paywall customers throughout the world. You'll all therefore be able to testify that part of his allure is how, despite all his multi-platform success and the huge riches that come with it, well enough to do a full rewiring of his upmarket West Yorkshire mansion terrace, that his feet have remained firmly on the ground, his head comprehensively unswollen. I am here, therefore, to bring you the unsettling news that when conversing on our WhatsApp group about our subject today, he used quotation marks to quote himself, only just falling short of officially adding his name after said quote by way of attribution. Furthermore, in what may be reassuring to some but equally disconcerting to others is that once challenged, he was completely aware of his textual largesse. So as the great wit Hugh Ferris said in response, and I quote, strong in both self-awareness and self-regard. What was the quote, I hear you ask? The quote was this, is the balance of power in women's football shifting away from the US and towards Europe? Rory Smith, 2022. It is a question quoting Rory Smith and indeed one that will be partly answered by Rory Smith. On the subject of the Women's Euro 2021 in 2022, starting on the day of this very pod's release, a day with two major events then. So to get us going and to hopefully not speak of himself in the third person at any point is Rory Smith. I think that's a slightly unfair characterization of what I was doing. I was presenting you effectively with an essay question. He's done you rotten there, Robert. Yeah, that's slightly unfair. I mean, it's leaving aside the questionable morality of, um, of airing our dirty linen in public. Um, I feel as though that's a slight misrepresentation from Ferris, but I am used to that by now. Um, <laughs> no, I think that what, what is most interesting about this summer's Euro is probably next year's World Cup, almost, which is that... Women's football has traditionally, for the last 20 years, say, been dominated by the US and to a slightly lesser extent Canada. They've been kind of the major forces. Japan deserve a mention. Brazil have had moments of of prominence. Um, But Europe's always been a little bit sort of lagging behind those countries. And in France in 2019, it looked to me like, as, as someone who is, who is not going to pretend they're an, an expert on, on women's football, who doesn't have the familiarity that people who cover it far more frequently than I do, um, would possess. It looked to me in France three three years ago hmm. that, that the European countries were, were not only catching up and catching up quickly, but they were doing it in a way that the US, and I hesitate to use this, because it sounds a bit disparaging of you know what has been one of the most powerful sports teams of the last 20 years, and I don't mean it to be, were maybe not quite ready for because I think that what what you're starting to see now are the the emergence of distinct European styles, and that I that I don't think has happened before. The the fact that the US's advantage has always been in section nine and and college football and the 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 fact that there have been lots of of high quality female players coming out of universities. That's a system that only really really exists in the states. We don't have that anywhere else. That doesn't. That's not how sports work in Europe generally universities as a rule are not particularly relevant to professional sports in Europe and I think you, the to me the defining style what has been considered like best practice of women's football has always been set by the states and that's natural because the states are the best team in France in 2019 it looked to me like the Dutch particularly but the Spanish to an extent and maybe France kind of um, although the French women's team are a lot like the French men's team in that they have an awful lot of talent and invariably they're arguing with each other. Um, which suggests that there is some sort of universal truth to being French. Um, <laughs> but the, uh, Seen the, only through the prism of their elite representative football I think, teams. <laughs> I think if your football teams keep having massive arguments, you have to wonder, like, is this part of our national character? The... But anyway, I th- you started to see these teams playing in a style that wasn't really related to how the Americans play. The American, the, the USWNT, tends to be fitter and stronger and quicker, technically very good, but there's a lot of kind of physicality to the way they play. It's, it's, a, it's a high impact, quite percussive style. Um, 
the Spanish and the Dutch in particular looked a lot, a lot more technical, a lot slower, a lot more sort of contemplative. Um, and I think what will be really interesting this summer is working out which teams have developed that most rapidly over the last three years. And the, the other thing with women's football, obviously, is, is it changes at a speed that men, I mean, men's football is glacial in comparison to the to the kind of development of women's football. Um, which teams have developed that sufficiently quickly to, to a sufficiently high level that they could go into the World Cup next summer in Australia and New Zealand, potentially as favourites, which would be a major, major difference on a on a global level to, to think that the, the US, w- would they would still be a force and they would still probably be the, the, the scalp to take. But it is conceivable that England or the Dutch or the Spanish or possibly the Swedes or the French could be more than a match for them and that is that I think is what will be really interesting this summer is working out which team is kind of the leading contender to I'm going to check this but I think it might be the first European world champions for 24 years or something I know can I uh, immediately fall into that terrible um, trap of being comparative with the men's game and this is not necessarily about technique or speed or anything like that it's to do with kind of historical paths so the old adage, which Rory, you're very familiar with because you've written a lot about it, is that English football felt itself to be the dominant force, not only in terms of its global positioning, but also in terms of the way that it played. And it kind of stuck to that as all of these different styles rose around it. And eventually it became close to obsolete and that it needed some sort of reawakening when it, uh, when it became clear to them eventually that that was the case, the old death of 442. Can you make that comparison to the USWNT, which is that they have been dominant for so long, playing this percussive, physical, being better in terms of that element of it? Yes, the technical aspect is concert with it, but but that being the major way to dominate women's football, have they done an England, done an FA, and actually not realised that they need to develop their game whilst others around them are finding their feet in terms of their style and the way that they want to play and it might end up being that they realize that a little bit too late because they go to australia new zealand and they don't win a world cup that i think expectations demand that they do pretty much every time i I mean i can't i can't say for certain that that's happened because i'm not familiar enough with the thinking i think there's a there's always a danger in whatever sport you're playing whatever gender you are when you have a long run at the top that that is always there. There always comes a point where that where that ends, and it's, it could be because you can't keep generating the talent, you can't keep bringing players through. It could be because of complacency. It could be because of bad luck. It could be because somebody else sees what you're doing and improves upon it in a way that you can't respond to quickly enough. It ha- that's just what happens. Um, I think that's maybe magnified a little bit by the fact that the Amer- the culture around the USWNT is 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 quite insular in a way i think that it was also it, the system's harder to change because if it is this kind of tentacle like system all the way into college sports and this feeder system which is unique to america i imagine that it's it, it's it's harder and slower to change that sort of thing anyway isn't it it i remember in in my first exposure to the to the us women's team I was I was genuinely surprised, and maybe I shouldn't have been. Um, and I don't. It, this wasn't a gender thing. It was a kind of. Um, if anything, it was like an American thing. But like, have you ever done a Brazil a Brazil men's mix zone? No. A Brazil Brazil men's mix zone is insane. I mean, there's there's about forty thousand journalists. They've all got <laughs> their phones out. They there is utter utter carnage in terms of trying to get to the players. The the Brazilian men's national team is. There's like a globetrotter element to it. Like it is a full-on. It is a level above anything else. Like you know, Man United and Barcelona and Real Madrid all have all have massive followings all around the world, and they're huge brands. Nothing's as big in men's football as the Brazil national team. Nothing in terms of interest, in terms of like frenzy. And I'd never seen anything like it until I was exposed to the the, the U.S. women's team. That that is it's a smaller scale, but it's just as kind of what's the word just just as kind of intense like there is a really kind of there's a sense with fevered there's a sense with the u.s women's team that 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 is that they are the best team in the world and they are the only show in town and there's a there's a reason for that and it's legitimate and it's it's understandable and it's been earned 
I think at times there is a flip side to that, which is that, that, that they, there is a tendency maybe not to see anything else as being relevant to them in yeah. particular. Um, and again, that's, that's, that's part of the risk of being the top dog. That's what happens, that you start to believe that, that you start to feel like everything else is kind of down, happening down there. It doesn't really, doesn't really apply to us. And to be fair to the, to the American players, quite a lot of them have, have taken the chance in the last few years to come across to Europe, to expose themselves to different cultures, to... To maybe not to learn anything. I think a lot of them have have come in a kind of educational capacity to teach things, um, but they 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 haven't been insular by any stretch of the imagination. You've seen American players at PSG and, Le- and at Lyon. Um, there's American players in Germany. There's, there's a, there have been a lot of American players in the WSL. But whether that feeds into the team as a whole, I'm not entirely sure. It does seem to me, and I don't mean this necessarily as a criticism, that the the USWNT is kind of its own ecosystem. Hmm. And and the danger, I guess, is that when you're your own, you're, you are a self-sustaining ecosystem, you maybe don't realise what's happening in other ecosystems. And it, I think what interests me most about it is that we've not had that in, and again, it's the dread comparison to men's football. Men's football has been a truly global thing for a long time, to the extent now that you see, you sort of see you know brazilian clubs churn out the players that europe wants they don't there's no such thing as a brazilian player who comes through to say they what fans in brazil want to see the reason you know we talked about our brazilian domestic football is dreadful because um it does it's all defensive midfielders there's a reason it's all defensive midfielders and it's that that's what they can sell that's what they can produce in industrial quantities and sell on to europe because turns out european clubs always need defensive midfielders the and then there was a while after Dani Alves and Marcelo came through when it was fullbacks. It was just Brazilian clubs just churned out fullbacks. Now it might be something different. It might be in. It might be forwards who play on the wide forwards who play on the wrong side. That that is what European clubs are crying out for. So you get Savinho, you get Keiki, you get old, you know Vinicius. That's what they. That's what they're churning out. Um, women's football doesn't have that globalized effect quite yet. And there's two kind of really interesting strands to that. I think one is that the US is its is its own thing. And Australia, to an extent, is the same. And the other is that because we can't see a lot of women's football, because it's not broadcast, it's really hard to work out where everybody stands. So the WSL, a reader actually to the newsletter made this point to me, and it's a really, really good point. That there is this perception that the WSL is the strongest of the women's leads, possibly in the world, certainly in Europe. But that seems to be based on the fact that that's the one that's easiest to watch. Yeah. We have no real idea... Mm. Unless you're a really dedicated fan of Spanish women's football, of which there will be some outside Spain, don't get me wrong, there'll be some, but it won't be many. It's really hard to work out, like, how good is Real Madrid's women's team? Because they might win lots of games easily in Spain, but we don't know what the standard is. We don't know what the context of their achievements are. And that makes it really difficult to, to compare where everybody stands. And, you know, even how good the, the NWSL is compared to the WSL, there is still that mystery that has disappeared a long time ago from men's football. And that, I think, makes everything a lot more intriguing. I think that was a mistake in terms of regular and in-depth observers of the WSL made a couple of years ago when there were new recruits and new teams in the league. And this idea that it was the best in the world was, was trumpeted pretty ferociously. And then it turned out that Barcelona were exceptional and won the Champions League at the end of the season and then the following season Lyon came back and PSG were a force and Barcelona were there or thereabouts again and and in reality I suppose the WSL's strength is that the, the talent of players is distributed across more clubs than it is in Spain and France where maybe you have well Barcelona blow everybody away in, in Spain and, and Lyon and PSG in, in a similar fashion in France. I'm, I'm quite intrigued by this sort of idea of sort of complacency and, and maybe even a bit of stagnation in, in the US. I wonder when we talked about the, when we had the GOAT conversation and, and we were talking about Tom Brady when he initially retired, is, is, is US women's football perhaps in this difficult position where, although it's, a global game there is still that sort of american sporting exceptionalism mm. and you talk about the the, the 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 fervor around around the team is that this belief that they are their number one has been solidified by winning successive world cups but since that 2019 world cup we have seen this acceleration 
of the women's game in Europe in particular. And that has been driven by, in particular, the clubs getting better. Mm. I've mentioned Barcelona, Lyon, PSG, the WSL teams have, have accelerated in terms of what they are offering. And that the national teams in Europe are benefiting from that flow of players who have developed quickly together, which is why Spain are becoming a force, why the Dutch won the Euro last time around and, and will be challenging for it again, why England keep getting close without necessarily convincing that they're going to, to go all, all the way. And that because the club game in North America, I mean, I'm staggered there's still only 12 National Women's Super League sides. There are the same number of top flight sides in North America as there are in, in England, in WSL. The Women's Champions League has expanded to 16 teams in the group stage. The game is expanding everywhere, apart from where it's traditionally been its strongest. And will that stagnation prove to be the reason that, that the European nations have been able to catch up? I think, yeah, the... the it's the NWSL has expanded and certainly one of the, the new franchises, Angel City, have, have kind of landed with a real thud sounds dismissive, doesn't it? I, don't <laughs> yes, but there's, I, don't, but I mean it in a good way. Splash, splash. There's, yeah, still like the, only 12, there's still only 12 yeah, of them. In, in a you, country the size of a continent, there's still only as many top flight clubs as there are in our... Tiny little league, backwater. Like, yeah. <laughs> the, the, yeah, and it is, and I wonder actually whether they've been in... in I mean, MLS has, has expanded maybe slightly recklessly in a maybe to Europeanize it, and most of the new franchises in MLS are, are quite successful, and they you know they attract crowds and all that stuff. But you wonder whether they maybe didn't quite need to to do it quite that quickly. But there's obviously the demand, so fine, not a problem. Um, you wonder if the NWSL has been a little bit negative, a yeah. little bit a little bit too cautious, and certainly that you know Angel City had um, did we talk did we talk about this? The fact that Angel City had sold. 15,000 season tickets or something before they'd played a game and what that means about fandom because I find mm. that fascinating like how how can you be sure you're going to support them you might get the debt to the I don't know you might get to the the stadium and discover that you actually really hate them and want to support the other team that that'd be really awkward be stuck with it you're lumbered with a season ticket the um and it that that in itself I think is a fascinating like cultural phenomenon but there but have also been not that many games because there aren't that many clubs so maybe, no, it's, and I, maybe and I, it's an easier decision to make and I guess the the argue the, the counter argument would be that you're retaining the quality because you've got all the you know all the players are spread around fewer teams so you you maintain that sense mm. of 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 kind of prestige and elitism and uh and high quality and certainly if you talk to players who've played at Leon, they'll tell you that the best thing about being at Leon is the training because you're playing against 22 yeah. of the other best players in the world and I think that you have an element of that in, in the NWSL where the quality remains incredibly high rather than becoming too diffuse but yeah I think there is a well, that's parallel the argument here. for the franchise system in American sports yeah. full stop yeah. isn't it yeah there, there is a parallel here as there always is with the free Hanseatic cities uh, of Hamburg and Bremen and the others um which is that that it's close proximity and competition that, and competition that drives innovation, and that is basically what happens in European football, mm. whether it's men or women. That you have all of these different teams and clubs and brands who are trying to outdo each other, and there's you know there's a lot more. There are more of them in men's football than there are in women's football, although it's catching up fast. Um, and they are all locked in this kind of death spiral where they all have to, they all want to win, and only one of them can win. So they, they kind of do whatever they can to find whatever edge they 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 can yeah. find. I don't think, if I'm honest, that that same impulse exists at all in American sport. Yeah, and that's the advantage that Europe's had in football eventually even over brazil and argentina there's no there's no metropolis in the world more closely packed with football teams high level football teams in buenos aires but more broadly in europe you have different countries you've got different leagues you've got different teams all those different levels they're all competing with each other and that's what drives best practice that's what creates progress i, I think that that has started in women's football maybe to create a speed that american sport just generally can't live with because that quality quantity Counterpoint is, I suppose we will find out with the World Cup in, in Australia and New Zealand next year just which side of the line it's best to come down on. But as well as only having 12 teams, I think their rosters are fairly restricted. It's only about 20 players per roster in the, the NWSSL. So that's not a huge pool of play. 
again, if you consider the number of players in Europe who are playing in the Champions League, mm-hmm. that is significantly greater than the number of players who are playing top flight soccer in North America. So although they might have the, the quality within those relatively small rosters, is there almost a glass ceiling in place considering the depth of talent coming through? You're talking about the, the university systems. There must be a, a huge number of soccer players in North America and not a huge number of positions within the elite clubs for them to go into. And, and whereas in Europe, we, we, we have the other end of the spectrum where the expansion has, has enabled many more aspiring female footballers to, to get an opportunity at, at, at either at the professional level or at least at a very, very high level. Well, I, I went to Barcelona last year, I think, to speak to... Um, I spoke to Marta Torrejon, who's one of the kind of who's been there her entire career, or more or less her entire career, mm-hmm. um, about the difference that they that they see in Barcelona's women's team, Barcelona Femini, now compared to, to when she started. And she said that you know the big difference is that they they train all the time. They before they were training at, at seven p.m. They they'd work or they'd study during the day, and then they'd go to training at seven p.m. and they'd probably train three times a week. Now it's every day. They're professional. It's it's from from a young age. If you're a, an aspiring female footballer in, in in Catalonia or in Spain more generally, you are taken into Barcelona's academy. You are trained within an inch of your life. You are inculcated in that that thing of football as a kind of as a holy pursuit. And whether that's healthy or not is a different debate. But that's what they do, um, and that applies now to girls who are thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. In the US, that's not happening, and those are really valuable years. And all right, the US has a, a massive historical advantage. It has Section 9, which means that, that you, you have the possibility of going to colleges on athletic scholarships. Everything's, everything has to be equal in education. There can't be any, any discrimination. Not arguing with Section 9 at all. But it still takes you through college. And that, that from a, like a creating rounded people point of view, is a really good idea. And there's a reason that like, the US women's team has been such a leader on conversations in terms of equal pay and... Um, and social issues, inclusivity. And discrimination, and inclusivity, and prejudice, and and recently on abortion rights after Roe v. Roe v. Wade was rolled back. Um, there's a reason that they are such articulate spokespeople for those issues, and it's partly because they've come through college. They, you know, they're part of those conversations. They've been exposed to those conversations in a way that footballers, male or female, in Europe, are maybe not encouraged yeah. to, because you know, from the age of 15, they are told you think about football, don't worry about anything else. But from a professional point of view, it has a massive advantage as you're getting all those extra hour, extra hours in. And you wonder whether at some point that might start to hold the US back. We see that in the men's game, where it's only relatively recently that the academy system has started to exist in the States. And there's a reason that you know America struggled to produce men's players, given that a lot of their players were starting their careers properly at, at 19 or 20, when really they should have been starting them at 13. Which again... Maybe not that healthy, perhaps not the best idea, but that's the way that Europe and South America do it, and Africa and Asia. And if you don't do it, then you're you're losing time. You're you're starting from a lower a lower sort of vantage point. And I I wonder whether that actually feeds into the sense that the, I'm, I'm not saying the U.S. national team is getting worse, but I don't know if it's getting better as quickly as the European teams are, and that's maybe the issue. So, so I want to ask a question about, because you mentioned about style as well, and, and, and we've talked about the kind of logistical and structural uh, issues that, that might lead to, to, to this kind of reframing of, of women's football and focusing uh, more on Europe providing the elite rather than the States. But is there, I mean, Steve, you've, you've commentated on, on women's football. Rory, you've followed it too. You've, you've been to, to major tournaments. Again, are we, are we following a similar historical path that we've seen before? Are Spain basically following the path that Barcelona are setting. Are Barcelona a team that have an identifiable style that we can understand as mainly watchers of the men's game? And does that help promote their ability? It certainly does at club level, but but then Spain on the international stage. Is it something that, again, when we're comparing the two continents, we say, well, the, the US will have some sort of reckoning where they think, well, we need to bring some of that way of playing into our 
into our style so that we can compete with them because at the moment if they're going to be playing so fluidly and brilliantly and playing in the 4-3-3 of Barcelona and we, we don't do that we play in a certain uh, a certain style which has brought us success but might not in the future are we going to see a distinctive styles and I just wonder if Steve when you've been commentating on women's mm. football you've been able to identify those yes it might be stereotypical but but styles that Rory mentioned at the beginning of this conversation as being ones that are rising up to the extent that they might be more successful on the global stage than perhaps the American style which has been in the past yeah. might be in the future well, I, I just it cast my mind back to the the Women's Champions League a couple of seasons ago now, and and we did the knockout stages on BT Sport, and the the first game that I did in those knockout stages was Chelsea Atletico Madrid, and Chelsea c- collectively were too strong across two games for Atletico, and deservedly beat them. But then in the next round, I saw Manchester City against Barcelona. And that was where the the distribution of the talent through WSL was exposed as being potentially an issue because individually, Barcelona's players were so vastly superior, quicker, more technically gifted, that they simply blew City away in the first 15 minutes of that game. Which is kind of, kind si- of the way that US women's national team has done it in the past. They were quicker, and- better and... And, and City seemed ill-prepared for that, which was astonishing, bearing in mind they must have done their homework. And I wonder whether that is where the advantage now will lie for some of the, the European sides in, in terms of playing catch-up in, in the way that Rory was talking about the US style, is that those, those players who have played so successfully together for their clubs now will be able to translate that to their national teams and use that individual brilliance to maybe offset the greater physicality, collective unity uh, that, that the US team has. Because we've seen how successful this, the Spanish and French teams have been in terms of overwhelming the WSL sides. And I, I wonder whether the, the style in WSL is a little bit more closely aligned with what we've seen in North America than, than what the likes of Barcelona, Lyon and, and more recently PSG have been able to achieve. I think it's funny though that the one thing that Barcelona felt after they lost to Lyon in the 2019 final was that they weren't strong enough or quick enough. That was the thing that they really identified they needed to work on. Put it right pretty quickly though, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, and they, but they, 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 I think they got them back in early that summer. I think they made a couple of signings and they, they, they worked out that they weren't technically inferior to Lyon, but they, they just couldn't live with their kind of intensity, and that is not a problem for any of the American teams. The American teams will match the Europeans for intensity. The the, the battle line will be around the technical level. How mm. what what can you do when you when you have got the kind of physical upper hand, I guess. Which is true of, you know, sport in general. Ultimately yeah. if you're if you're bigger and quicker and stronger than the other person, you're probably going to win. The other person's gonna have to be a lot better at, fo- at football or whatever sport it might be than you if they are at a massive or a reasonable physical disadvantage. So I don't think that's irrelevant, and I certainly don't think it's the case that, you know, I don't think the US will get to Australia and find themselves beaten by Finland in the group stages. I think it may be that by the latter stages, once the the elite European teams have kind of winnowed each other down a little bit, that you might find that one of them is is able, one or maybe two of them are able to beat the US. And we saw that in the Olympics last summer, Mm. that Sweden beat the US, and obviously it's the the Olympics, so it's a slightly different sample of players um but the Swedes didn't just beat them they beat them really easily and it, it quite quite strikingly and that may not be the case you know if the Swedes run into in run into the states in in Erinsborough or Summer Bay <laughs> next season then then next summer then maybe you have a different is no more you should know that no, the, they've stopped filming the documentary there, but the place still exists. <laughs> right, okay, you're right. Sorry. The, the, um, <laughs> the reality goes on. The reality still... TV show is over. Lassiter's is still a place. The, um, the, you know, if, I mean, that's where they'd stay. I presume that's where the teams would stay. They'd stay at Lassiter's. Yes. The, um, yeah, if, if the, the Swedes encounter the US there, it might, there might be a very different outcomes. The US will be in a different, you know, everyone's in a different sort of part of their, their preparatory cycle and stuff and yeah. for the Olympics. That's not what teams are building for anymore. But there w- it was striking how easily the Swedes beat the US in Tokyo. 
and, and the it, Swedes are the Swedes are currently the top ranked European side, second in the world behind the US. So they would feel, based on you know, if you just look at the raw numbers, that yeah. they are the most likely. To, to get close to, to the US. Um, but that, be... that in itself is really interesting because the Swedes aren't really being talked of as potential winners yeah. of the Euros because there is a... Part, partly, look, it's because we're all British and the Britain is... You know, we've sat, sat here saying, oh, isn't American sport insular? Which is very much pot kettle black from <laughs> from three English people. But it's on home, it's 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 in england england are on home soil england are good they're on this incredible run where the the goal they conceded to the dutch at Elland road uh, a couple of weeks ago was the first time they've been behind under serena Viedman. they are a contender so there's a there's a natural desire here to say this is england's chance to you know it's coming home neil diamond all that nonsense um, but, but they the, are the lowest ranked of the top 10 teams so they i yeah. think they're about 6 or 7 in the top eighth, 10 they're eighth, eighth aren't they yeah. so so they're i think i think there are four or five at least teams ranked higher than them in Sweden France the Dutch Germany and Spain are right, all ranked so there you higher go. Than but i think it's yeah. it's because we 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 tend to consider if we don't know um which again is a is a, a point worth making um that we identify national teams via the strength of the clubs that we do know about. Yeah. So we think Spain are going to be good because we know Barcelona have been brilliant. Yeah, well, and this is this is something that, that is true of all international football, yes, that, it's, exactly. that it's very hard to compare the relative strengths of of contender teams between tournaments because they don't yeah, play especially if we often. don't know the individual players because yeah. we, we, we again we would admit to not necessarily knowing no, all but of the Swedish it, players it's more pronounced in the women's football because you can't unless you really seek it out you can't watch Spanish or French or Swedish domestic women's football it's it's not it will be streamed somewhere but you have to there isn't that kind of bedrock of knowledge of Oh, we've seen all these players in the Champions League so we know roughly how good they are when when you know, we know how good Leia Alexandri is compared to Lucy Bronze. Mm. But for a lot of the teams, a lot of the players and a lot of the teams, you don't know. So half the Swedish team comes from Hacken, which is a team that, that has only been known as Hacken for two years, because it used to be Gothenburg Copperbirds, uh, and then was taken over, was subsumed by Hacken when it went bust. Um, I, would, I would wager that there's not many people, even really ardent women's football fans, and I say this, and, and there will be some, who have seen a lot of hacking. They they might have seen a bit in the Champions League, they might have seen a bit here or there, but there is not that same ability to say, do you know what, I caught 10 minutes of them on BT because Steve was commentating and I saw Nice play Saint-Étienne, so I know exactly how quickly all of the Saint-Étienne players run away from fireworks that have been fired at them. <laughs> at um, their tunnel, <laughs> as they, they seek haven. You don't have that... It, it's very, very hard yeah. for all but, and I, this sounds like an excuse making, it's not, um, all but the most ardent followers yeah. of, of international women's football to have that idea of, okay, I know how, how these players stack up against each other. And that makes it much harder to say who the favourites are for this tournament. And I think that's the danger for, for England, that there has been a desire to present England as favourites. And then, as Hugh says, we know the Barcelona players, we know the Lyon players and the PSG players. So it's like Spain and France will be good. Germany, historically, they were the last team to European team to be world, to be world champions. It was 2007. It's probably not that relevant. But Germany, you know, Wolfsburg are good. Frankfurt are good. We, we, you and know, it's, and it's, it's slightly kind of reductive, facile thinking. But that pervades when we don't have the background knowledge that you're, well, also, that you're saying, Rory, that is, is simply impossible for us to get access to, even if we would want to or need to get access to that. I'm doing some announcing at some of the stadia for the, for the Euro, and I, I, I need to learn how to say a lot of Scandinavian names. And, and genuinely, the resource that I would normally do that if it was another sport or, or men's football, would it would be very easy for me to go and find out how to, to say those names, but it's much harder. But I can't get it wrong. <laughs> So I've got to, I've got to find out what it is, and that's that's harder this, for me to do. I don't think uh, there is probably an implicit criticism somewhere in here of of the way of that the women's w the women's football space in the media, which we have to say f for a start isn't big enough. But where it where it exists, it focuses naturally, really, on on the WSL and the mm. Champions League and the the bid familiar teams, and that makes perfect sense. There's, it certainly makes business sense, and it that's where the audience is, that's where the, the fans are. The, the and it also, Rory, just to interject, does focus very heavily on positivity. That yeah. over time, greater objectivity of the coverage would perhaps give us a better sense of the weaknesses 
as well as the strengths. And that mm. takes us back to this idea that two, two years ago, WSL, best league in the world. It was sort of a, a question of which of the English teams within the Champions League, not that it wouldn't be any of them. And, and lessons, I think, still need to be learned a little bit well, in that regard. Yeah, and that's, that, again, to bring the men's game into it, that's a problem in the men's game, that, 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 every, that there is a tendency to stare at the Premier League and diminish everything else because there, the, the natural assumption is, well, this is amazing. We keep being told it's amazing, so everything else must be a bit crap. And often it doesn't quite work out like that. So, I mean, Real Madrid were written off hmm. constantly this season and ended up winning the Champions League. So maybe Real Madrid were quite good, you know. And I, I say that as someone who, for three months, wrote Real Madrid off because I was pretty <laughs> sure they were rubbish. But they weren't. They won the Champions League. So that even though, you know, they maybe aren't, they're not going to go down in history as a, the sort of team that changed the game like Barcelona, they're still pretty good. They've won five Champions Leagues since 2014. That's not bad. Um, the... I think in women's football, that's way easy. to undersell it. Yes, exactly. Real Madrid women... not necessarily used to the understatement of those who cover them. <laughs> I think. The, I mean, I think the thing we all admire about Real Madrid is just how sort of reserved they are in singing their own praises. The, but that, I think that's even more pronounced in women's football because there is this desire, and it's an understandable desire, to kind of advocate for it. And if you're, if you're an English women's football pundit or observer or or former player or whatever it might be. Your, your instinct is going to be set to, to focus on the WSL because that's what matters the most to you. It's perfectly natural, not a problem. But I think there is, a, there, there is something lacking at the moment and hopefully it will come because it's taken a long time to change with the men's game in the kind of internationalism of it, mm. that sense of, all right, we understand now that, yes, Barcelona win, win six or seven nil quite frequently in La Liga, but we know actually, do you know what, Real Sociedad are pretty good. They're not bad. You know, just because Barcelona are amazing doesn't mean that mm. all those other teams are, are dreadful. And we know that Real Sociedad, Real Sociedad are good because we've watched them, because we've seen mm. them play. So we know that they have a striker who is extremely talented and will at some point be quite a big name in, in world football. Levante or... Madrid CFF, the other team in Madrid, we know that they're, that, you know, Madrid CFF have got six Brazilian internationals in their squad. We know that they're good. At the moment, it's very hard to to be sure of what any of these things mean in relation to each other. And I think that's partly where there is pressure on England because their, their run up to the final has been really, to the finals have been really good. Their form is good. They've got lots of good players. There's no question. There's no shortage of quality. But I, it does feel to me like a lot of the analysis lacks an awareness that the other teams might also be looking at looking around and thinking, Do you know what, we can win this as well. And that's great for the tournament. It make, makes it really open. Mm. And it also makes it a little bit mysterious in the way that men's World Cups kind of used to be before it turned out that you could watch every single player on YouTube a million times. And, and um, find out how to pronounce their names. And find out how to pronounce their <laughs> names. The flip side is that it, you wonder, I suppose, whether it will create maybe unnecessary pressure on England and that if England, say, get knocked out in the semi-finals by Sweden, don't know if that can happen, then that will be seen as a disappointment when in reality, maybe that was what was yeah. always going to happen. Yeah. And just, uh, I, I want to maybe offer a bit of a, a counterbalance because we feels like we spent most of the time suggesting, you know, and, and any of our US listeners will be, you know, effectively, sorry, US women's national team, your time at the top is over. It is inevitable that one of these plucky <laughs> Europeans are going to, to best you at the next World Cup. That I wonder whether they will probably feel relatively confident that maybe next year is too soon and that that quality-quantity differential, current, the balance is still in their favour and that whilst European football collectively has made huge strides in the last three years, that still that, that core strength that the US have means that it might be difficult for any one individual European nation, despite the fact they're creeping up behind them like pantomime villains, to, to get the better of them. And, and that they, you could understand why they would be feeling relatively secure going into 2023, but that maybe 2027 might be a more realistic prospect for, for a European side to, to really fancy their chances. Yeah, and the, and the other thing we should say, having been quite, not critical of the, of the US, but maybe not quite as effusive as generally you might be about a team that's won the last two World Cups. It, it, it's partly inevitable because if you, and you see it in in both club and international football, that when you have a dominant generation, it's very hard for the generation behind that to come through because as the players get older, 
their their legacy and their legend is enough to retain their place and also their talent doesn't just disappear overnight so it's very hard for whoever the next Alex Morden is to knock Alex Morden off mm. out of her position and the problem there is that there will come a point where Alex Morden is not quite as good as she used to be it hasn't arrived yet but it it will come because that's the nature of time and at that point you might not have the replacement ready to go and that's something that all teams struggle with and it is inevitable it's not it's not a criticism of the way the US runs its women's team or the way that US football operates or, or anything like that. It's just the nature of sport that there will come a point where the US are caught in that transitional cycle and they get it wrong because of how because of the success that they've had. It's the yin and the yang of international and club. It's the yin and the yang of elite sport and you can't really avoid it. Uh, the final point we need to, uh, to make or in the form of a question is how annoyed is Steve going to get about the pluralising of Euro into Euros throughout this competition? Of course, if you look at the official uh, logo, very clearly states UEFA Women's Euro. Yep. No S. And yet, uh, how annoyed are you going to get about the fact that there, there will be an S on it? And how much are we going to try and fight or, or die upon this particular hill over the course of the next month? Well, there's only one trophy handed out at the end of the tournament. There aren't multiple strands of competition with multiple winners. Hence, it is the Wimbledon Championships and it is the European Championship. That is the difference and that is why it is Euro rather than Euros. He's such a nerd, isn't he? Such a nerd. But I think when it's actually on the logo and ignored, I do have a, a little bit of sympathy because it says on the logo, women's Euro. I mean, why do we just completely shamefacedly ignore what is written uh, on the logo? Well, we still, we still completely we... ignore, ignore the name of Barcelona's home stadium. So, uh, you know, but there are other, other such things that we continue to overlook. The, the, I piece, saw something... the piece in The Athletic by Paul Bias uh, was forwarded to some BBC colleagues. Um, so I'll, I'll die on that particular hill, Stephen, if you die on the Euro Euros hill. It's a deal. I, I was amazed that The Athletic's house style was, was still new camp. I mean, I, th- I thought we'd all moved on from that in the same way as we, we all stopped calling, we all stopped saying Juventus in like 1992. Apparently, it's uh, precedent and convention that wins the day, even when precedent and convention is wrong. wrong. To be fair, Steve, we did have a vote on whether we, we agreed with the Euro in 2001, I think, and we said no. So um, that, that was why it became the Euros. <laughs> the same thing applies to the currency, incidentally. Yes, yeah. Plur- you will be changing your pounds sterling for euro, not euros. Uh, before we go, um, and we need to, because Stephen is getting more and more furious as the temperature rises. I, and that- I, was, quite, I was relatively calm. I no, thought, you were calm and considered. We can see your face. The listener can't. Um, before we go, another dip into the tear-tinged mailbag for some of the more gushingly emotional messages sent in response to our contractually enforced ending, uh, which will take place at our live show. Head to myticket.co.uk. Uh, a couple of buffaloes contribute to this week's thinly veiled. Self-congratulation on our parts. John Wood is first. Dear Hugh, Rory, Stephen and Chinch. Well, shit. Uh, <laughs> he starts knowing that I have to beep it. I can't believe that SPM is coming to an end. I've been listening to the uh, podcast since episode 77, nearly 200 episodes ago. And this podcast quickly became not only a regular part of my podcasting schedule, but the very top of that schedule. When I asked my mates back in May 2018, do they have any good football podcasts to recommend? My mate Chris said set piece menu is good and a bit different to the others. Doesn't really cover recent stuff, just a specific topic. Uh, Thanks for our subtitle. Uh, This was the best thing about SPM for me. Not knowing which article Rory was going to workshop week by week meant that the discussion never got boring. Hearing Chinch's brilliant soccer stories or Stephen lose it about not going to VAR. Rory's 25 minute monologues or Hugh saying never mind Jack and Rory what a soccer story had an increasingly faster cadence week by week brought me great joy every time I tuned in. Four years later, I have laughed, gotten a bit emotional on a few occasions and got far more excited about being declared a Buffalo than I should have done. I'm glad it's coming to an end for a good reason, although Hugh, I doubt the BBC would even notice if you carried on with this podcast. I'm sure neither me or the other 17 listeners would tell anyone. Thank you for the memories, he says. All the best. John from Liverpool, Merseyside, not Huntington Beach, California. And finally to Rich Reardon, a Buffalo also associated with his location as he rarely signs off without reminding us that he's in Bootle. Uh, His email subject is a quote, and it is this, and he doesn't need the Rory Smith at the end of it. It's sweetness that I'm thinking of. 
which is from a song from the late 1980s from Nana Cherry, talking about Swedish people, um, and it's called Buffalo Stance. If you'd like to uh, go onto YouTube and watch that like I did uh, Great last tune. night. Oh, Stephen's old enough to remember. Good. Nana Cherry's Swedish. She is Swedish. Is that right? Indeed. Didn't know that. Well, there you go. Uh, it, it, I think it, the Buffalo Stance uh, back then in the 1980s, it was a thing about uh, how to hold yourself in public. And it was a cool thing. Um, all right, lad, says Rich. The Who after Keith Moon died. The West Wing after Aaron Sorkin stopped writing it. Manchester United, only Scott McTominay is in midfield. Morecambe and Wise, only on ITV. Biker Grove, but Donna Eyre has left. Yes, Chinch is Donna Eyre somehow. It's good to know that you're knocking on the head, lads. You don't want to go on forever, long after people have lost interest. Instead, best to go out at the top. Hugh, good luck with a full-time gig at the BBC. Make sure you make the most of it before that loon Dory sets fire to the building. Sleep with one eye open, he recommends. That's something I won't be able to read out when I become a full-time member paid up of BBC. Uh, Stephen, without Turf Moore and Sean holding you back, I look forward to you getting more big games as you deserve them. Not Brunton Park again on a November Tuesday. Get someone to nudge Mowbray off a gantry or something. Rory. Truly, you are a unique writer. A combination of Johnny Liu minus the cricketing beef, Henry Winter without the hilarious self-importance, or a Migs no, Delaney thanks. who doesn't want to argue with every passing cloud. Basically, the inverted Duncan Castles without an egg for a head, uh, says Rich. And Andy, he finishes, is perfect. And I love him. Sorry. Anyway, thanks for sometimes reading out my utter nonsense. The nicest thing I can think to say is that you seem like nice, normal blokes who have spent some time every week for the last five years giving us something amazing and clever and just flipping ace for free using your talent, humour and skill just because you could. So, thank you. It was really very kind of you. We've all been through a bit in the last five years, haven't we? Thanks for making it easier because the four of you were somehow there and part of it. Also, I'm still really sorry for getting Pelham Van Donop's name wrong. Anyway, cheers, fellas. Rich Reard in Buffalo for another two weeks, I suppose, uh, from Bootle. No, but the Buffalo status applies in perpetuity. Indeed, it does. I mean, it still happened. Do you know what I mean? We've had a, we've had a message from James Craig on Twitter, which I think we, we really do need to consider. He asks, will there be a mass conferring of Buffalo status just before the last podcast in the style of Donald Trump handing out pardons in January 2021? <laughs> uh, no. Although you can ask, like several apparently did him in January 2021. Keep your correspondence coming to setpeacemenu at gmail.com. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Rory and to Stephen and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another Set Piece Menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. And we have two episodes left, one of which is the live show, which will be released at some point after the live show. And the one in between, I'm not guaranteeing that it will be on the Wednesday. But, you know, with only two left, I'm not entirely sure precedent and convention really matter anymore. People need to get used to us not being in their feeds. When yeah, they so expect. we should just surprise them. Surprise them. Yeah. We're ready. We'll do something. Uh, just, mainly because Rory has a holiday next week. So that's I'm, yeah, well, yeah, in fact, I'll be on holiday when this goes out, won't I? I'll be, you will indeed, yes. I'll Are be, you uh, going to Scarborough or Grimsby? Going to uh, a week in, uh, in Bradford planned. <laughs> just a uh, city break. No, we're going to Corsica. We're Ooh. taking two very pale children to a place where it's 35 degrees. It's going to go brilliantly. So Aurelie's first you're... time on a plane. Yeah, exactly. Aurelie's taking... first time on a plane. And, I mean, Kate hasn't been on a plane since 2019. Um, so she's more nervous. She started packing on Tuesday. <laughs> Welcome to my world.